All right, well, if you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, I want to shift gears this morning now off of that topic, and uh, bear with me as I bring out a little special gift here this morning. All right, see if I can get myself ready. Okay. All right, can everybody hear me? Can everybody hear me right now? There, I've got my mask on, and I'm ready for this sermon. You might be saying, what in the world is that guy doing preaching with a mask on? And I would actually ask you all the same question. What in the world are you all doing wearing masks out there in the audience? (laughs) You know, uh, six months ago, it would have been hard to imagine us sitting here with masks on. I'm going to put this up, okay? Now, now you have to tell me, is that more or less distracting like that? (laughs) So, now I'm going to leave it on for just a minute because I want to make a point here. Um, Like I said, six months ago, it would have been hard to imagine all of us sitting here with masks on. Almost, in fact, we couldn't have even imagined it. Um, But then the pandemic hit. And here we are, all sitting with masks and doing our best uh, to, to keep one another safe to love one another by wearing these masks and to slow the spread of the virus. And, you know, when you look at me here wearing this amazing mask, you know, if I were to, I can just hold it down here. You can't tell what's going on behind my mask, can you? Am I smiling? Am I frowning, scowling? Am I yawning? Am I sleeping? No, I'm not. Okay. So, all right. I'm not sleeping, but you can't tell what's going on behind the mask. And, you know, that's the difficulty with masks is what is behind the mask. And so uh, when you look at all these folks like us this morning who have to wear masks these days, you ask that question, what is behind the mask? It's, it makes communication a lot more difficult. In fact, you know, when we're up on stage, we don't wear masks because it's virtually impossible to communicate with a mask on. But speaking of that, how much did that distract you when I put this up over my face? It's, it's pretty distracting, isn't it? Let me put it there. Uh, you know, if, if I think for some of us, maybe for many of us, maybe even for all of us, I'd say we've been upset by the necessity of wearing a, a mask. We've been inconvenienced. Some of us don't like it at all. In fact, some of you I know are joining us uh, for worship at home because you don't want to wear the mask uh, as you worship. And we understand that and we can't wait for the day when you can rejoin us in person. But to all of us, what I want to talk about this morning, this actually fits directly in with our sermon, is don't let these masks, whatever it is you're wearing, nobody's wearing a shield like this that I saw this morning. uh, Don't let these masks distract you from what God is trying to tell you as you're here to worship. Because I know they can be incredibly distracting. Um, and And I would also say, don't let these masks distract you from what God is trying to tell you during this pandemic. Because we can get real upset at the government authorities who are requiring them or at the stores who won't let you come in without them or the restaurants that won't serve you food unless you have one on. But don't let these things distract you from what God is trying to tell us during this pandemic. Something that might be totally different from the mask. Or maybe it is connected to the mask. You know, it dawned on me at some point during the summer uh, as we're going through this series on the Minor Prophets as I stand up here and I look out at you all uh, in your masks from week to week um, that there's actually another kind of mask that we often wear as Christians um, or that we're tempted to wear. And nobody actually asks us or forces us to wear this other mask. In fact, unfortunately, we put it on voluntarily, gladly and willingly. It's almost natural to us to put on this other kind of mask. 
You know, uh, many of us, myself included, have been coming to church for years wearing this kind of mask. Um, and what mask am I talking about? I would call it the everything is fine kind of mask. Where you walk through these doors on Sunday morning with a smile on your face and you have your nice clothes on and you give somebody a handshake and uh, you pretend like everything's okay when maybe it's actually not okay. Um, and it's interesting, uh, that's what we would call faking it, right? Uh, faking it. And, and here's the most interesting part about that. You may think you're kind of putting a front on for people, but I would say the more serious thing is that oftentimes we put a mask on and a front on in our encounter with God. We like to put that shield up, act like everything's fine. To everyone around us, it looks like, you know, everything's just normal. And yet, deep down, it's not okay. So here's another picture uh, from from the great movie Star Wars. Now, I know not all of you are Star Wars fans, but this is a scene from the attack of the clones. So there's a clone army, basically, where every single soldier is wearing the exact same uniform, the exact same mask. You can't tell what they're thinking. And they're just marching along, doing the things they're supposed to do. And uh, I would say, again, this kind of reminds me a little bit of sometimes how we are tempted to come to church. You put on your uniform, which is your nice clothes or whatever you decide to wear. You put on your smile and then you come in and you just kind of go through the motions of this is what I'm expected to do at church. And what I think what we see here uh, in the book of Malachi is that when we come to church with this kind of mask on, when we approach God in worship with this kind of a mask or this kind of an attitude, God says, I, I can see straight through that. I can see straight through that. You know, um, I wonder this morning, I know all of us are wearing one mask, right? We, you came in with a cloth mask on, but I wonder... Are some of us wearing two masks today? Two masks. One that's visible and the other one that is invisible. And I think the book of Malachi tells us that God does not like that invisible mask. That one that's business as usual. I'm just going to go through the motions, check off all the boxes, and then go back to my life uh, the rest of the week. The fake or pretentious appearance. And he wants us to be open and honest with him. God wants us to be open and honest with him. And also open and honest with ourselves, with one another. And so this morning I think we'll see a great challenge from the book of Malachi as to what pure worship is, true worship is. Uh, God says, don't bother with putting on that mask. I can see right through it. I want your heart. I want your whole heart. I want all of you to desire to follow me. And so uh, I'm going to leave that mask on the ground now so you can understand what I'm trying to say. Um, and this morning now as we reach, this is interesting, this is our last week in the Minor Prophets. So as we reach the end of the series, we actually reach the end of the Old Testament, the very last book in the Old Testament before the Gospel of Matthew. Um, these are the final prophetic words that God gives to his people before the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, you heard Amy read some of those words. Those are kind of some of the parting words from God in the Old Testament. Just before what we have this thing called an intermission. Uh, we call it the 400 years of silence where God doesn't say anything to his people. So what's left ringing in their ears? It's the message of Malachi. Incredibly important message. If you think about it, these are the last words God gives until the living word, Jesus Christ, comes to his people. And so he says, remember these things. He wanted these things to be ringing in the ears of his people as they awaited the coming of Christ. He gives them a challenge to wholehearted worship. 
And I think what he says to them, and he does this by basically saying, you're wearing a mask. Or what we're going to see here today in the text is there's really kind of six different masks, six different heart conditions that are going on behind the scenes. And God says, these things are not okay. I want your whole heart. Don't pretend like everything's okay. Change. Let me change your heart so that everything really will be uh, wholehearted. So these are conditions, heart conditions, I believe, that God wants us to address as well. And so for anyone here this morning who wants to worship God with their whole heart, I think what God invites his people in Malachi to do to examine their heart, he's inviting us to do here this morning. And so we want to take a look at those six heart conditions and talk through them uh, and then talk about how to also overcome those things that would keep us uh, from worshiping with our whole heart. So uh, we're not going to read every verse of Malachi. It's actually a pretty short book, but we're going to kind of jump through them. There are actually six different disputes that God brings up. As you know, from week to week, God's had many different disputes throughout the prophets. And yet this book, even even within this book, even as he's disputing with them, he gives them hope and mercy and grace and says, if you return to me, I will return to you. And so we want to embrace those promises here this morning. Uh, and then the end result would be that we as God's people would take off these masks, uh, the invisible masks that we wear, and know that God wants all of us, not just the parts that we can see. So this first mask that God uh, addresses here in the book of Malachi, what's behind the mask? The first heart condition behind that mask uh, that's hidden uh, would be this idea of doubting God's love, doubting God's love. Now, where are we in these minor prophets? Remember, All throughout those early minor prophets, God said, if y'all don't shape up, I'm going to ship you out. I'm going to send you out to exile. You're going to be hauled away basically as slaves if you don't shape up. Well, guess what? God's people did not shape up, and so he shipped them out. They were hauled off as slaves and exiles. And then miraculously, around uh, 539 B.C., they returned to their land. God provided for them to come back home to their land just as he had promised he would. He fulfilled that promise. So now they're back in the land, and the book of Malachi is sometime in the 400s B.C., um, and guess what? Things are not going quite as they had hoped. We talked about this a little bit in the book of Haggai. Uh, same thing here in Malachi. It's almost concurrent with, with Haggai, but uh, this idea that things are just not going quite the way they had hoped. And so what do they say? Let's look at verse 2. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Let's just pause right there. Basically, what they're saying is, God, if you're loving us, you have a really funny way of showing it. Like, uh, if you've ever watched the movie uh, Fiddler on the Roof, do you remember the, the star of the show, Tevier? He says, God, I know we are your chosen people, but do you mind choosing somebody else every now and then? Something to that effect. Uh, because oftentimes God's people have gone through hard times. And that's exactly what they say. Things are not going well. How have you loved us? And I would say this, that they are actually doubting his love. Doubting his love and and doubting and disbelieving. There's really a fine line between those two. Because here's the thing. If you read through the Old Testament, you read through Scripture, even in the New Testament, I think God encourages us to ask questions. There are things we can't understand. And God says, it's okay to question my love. Think about some of the things the psalmist said. How long, O Lord, will you abandon me forever? It feels like you're abandoning me. That's questioning the goodness of God. Yet when you get to the point where I think these folks are, where they are, I think, have moved from just questioning to actually doubting or disbelieving the love of God, you'll see that their worship begins to unravel. And not just their worship, their lifestyle begins to unravel. 
They're doubting God's love. They've chosen to disbelieve the fact that he loves them, even after all they've been through. And so I would ask you this morning, are you ever tempted to doubt or disbelieve in God's love? Do you ever question or even doubt his love? Is that something that's ever occurred to you? When you're going through a hard time, you'd say, well, God, I know your word says that you love me, but it sure doesn't feel like it. And you begin to doubt that. Well, what does God say? Basically, God says, I'm a God who keeps promises from from the beginning. Here in verse 2, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And he goes on to explain how he chose the nation of Israel over the nation of Edom. And so, you know, we read that today. We have a hard time with those words like God would hate this other people. Well, these uh, when you read the word loved and hated in the Old Testament, these are the words of choosing. God says, I've chosen Jacob. I have not chosen Esau. I've chosen Jacob. I've rejected Esau. Um, and part of that, you see their choices played into those things. Yet. It's so interesting when you go back and look at the story of Jacob in Genesis, he didn't do anything to deserve God's choosing. Um, And I love that song that we sang earlier. uh, What have I done to deserve a love like this? Jacob didn't do anything to deserve a love like this. And yet God says, I promise that I will show you my love forever and ever. And so God reminds them of that fact. He says, from the very beginning, I have chosen to show you my love. Never doubt it. And so I would encourage you this morning, if you find yourself in a season or if you ever have found yourself in a season or if you ever will find yourself in a season where you're tempted to doubt God's love for you, remember his promises to you. Remember the promises of old and try to find one that he hasn't kept um, because he keeps all his promises. In fact, that's really the theme of all the minor prophets, this book of the 12. The 12 minor prophets drive that home again and again and again. God is faithful to keep his promises and including the promise that he makes here in Malachi to send the king 400 years later. So remember that we serve a God who keeps his promises. So doubting God's love is that first heart condition. These people were coming to worship. We're going to see here in the second second challenge. They're coming to worship and yet behind the scenes they're saying, I don't really believe that God loves me. Brothers and sisters, that is a lie straight from the pit. And so we need to believe the promises that God has made. And that is God loves you if you know him as your child, as his child. Second heart condition, and this is a big one. In fact, if you were going to sum up the book of Malachi, I think this is the one that it revolves around the most. And that would be the half-hearted worship that God's people are bringing to him. Half-hearted worship. Where do we see this? We see this in uh, verse 6 all the way down to halfway through chapter 2. And I just want to re- read a few verses so you get an idea of what it is that these people are doing. Uh, and this, this is really, we could call it half-hearted worship. We could call it sloppy worship or insincere. Uh, another word that people have used to describe it is superficial. In other words, they're going through all the motions, and yet God says, Your heart is not right. You're just checking off boxes, and that's not true worship because your heart is not in it. You know, uh, um, if you think about where we are in the history, again, these people came back, and they rebuilt the temple. God said, I want you to go back to your country. I want you to rebuild the temple. Haggai is the the story of that. Nehemiah and Ezra tell the story of that. So they're back there, and the temple is up and running. It's functioning. 
but it's superficial. They're walking in the doors. They're completing all the tasks of worship. And here's what God says is happening. So look at verse, uh, uh, let's see, we'll start with verses 6 through 9. It says this, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor, and will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. So what's this half-hearted worship they're doing? They're basically bringing God their leftovers. And this is a little hard for us to understand because we don't do sacrifices anymore, right? So if you go back and read in the book of Leviticus uh, or Numbers or any of the Pentateuch, and it talks about these sacrifices they're supposed to bring, there's something that God says over and over and over again. Bring me the unblemished Bring me the best of what you have. Bring me the firstborn. Bring me the first and the best. Because that's what I'm worthy of. If you understand who I am and what I've called you to do, you're going to bring me the best in worship. And what are these people doing? Well, they're like, uh, I'm going to keep the best for myself. Here's an animal with a lame spot. Nobody will notice that. I'll just take that and give that to God. Or here's one that's blind. He'll never survive. Let me offer that one as a sacrifice. In other words, they're giving God their second or third or just the leftovers, not the best. God says that is half-hearted worship. Uh, one thing I want to point out there is, it said, did you notice that word despise over and over again in there? It kept saying you despise the Lord, despise, despise. And that's the same word uh, that's used to talk about um, Uh, In fact, like when Goliath, David and Goliath, it says that Goliath despised the Lord God. In other words, he treated him as worthless, basically as common. So in other words, when God says you despise me, he's saying you're treating me as though I'm just something common, uh, like, uh, like commonplace and ordinary. And if you read through just in this section alone, all the names that are given to describe God, You have to realize he is anything but commonplace and ordinary. Verses 12 and 13. You profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that it may be despised. Verse 13. You say what a weariness this is and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Again, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. God says you would never bring this stuff to your government official and use that to pay your taxes. He'd be like off with your head for doing that because it's second best, third best. And yet that's what God's people are doing to him. You come to chapter 2, we're not going to read all these verses, but chapter 2 verses 1 through 9, God confronts specifically the priests, the religious leaders. And he says it's not just the people that are doing this, you all are going along with it. In fact, you're promoting it. You're letting unholy animals, unholy sacrifices come before me. This is half-hearted worship. It's insincere. It's sloppy. You're not giving me what I deserve. 
You know, it's really interesting when we look at this. This is how God felt. God felt that they were doing this. In verse 10, look at verse 10. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now, those are sobering words, and that's as close as we're going to get to God saying, hey, take off the mask. What you're doing is disgusting to me. You're not fooling me. How crazy would it be if if you walked up to the front door of Trinity Church one Sunday and there's an angel standing outside that says, hey, God wants these doors closed. Don't even turn on the lights in the building because what you're doing is a waste of time, on my opinion. And I pray that that's not everywhere we would get to. But God says there's a danger that your heart can go there. When you start to give God the leftovers or the second best or just whatever you can spare here and there, God says that's not true devoted worship. He wants your whole heart. You know, what what we see here is uh, people treating God as though it says that word despise or uh, profane. Again, that idea of just treating him as something common or ordinary when he, in fact, is not. Uh, one thing that I could think of that would kind of illustrate this fact, I know some of you are are uh, sunglasses fanatics, right? All right, so you can spend a lot of money on sunglasses, can't you? You can buy these Costa Del Mars. Uh, there's all these different brands you can buy for two, $300 for a pair of sunglasses. Or if you're like me, you could uh, buy a $10 pair from the gas station and it breaks every, you know, once a week or so. Um, but here's the thing. God's saying is, what I am is that expensive pair of sunglasses, and you're treating me like a $10 pair of sunglasses. You step on it, you throw it on the ground. Oops, I broke it. I can get another one. God says, I am nothing like that. I am nothing like any other God that you could ever worship or anything else that you could ever pursue. I am set apart and I am holy. And so if you're tempted to fall into this heart condition of half-hearted worship, what's the solution? How do you remedy this? How do you bring your heart back into line with true worship? I think the first step is to remember who it is that you're worshiping. Over and over again in here, it talks about his name. Verse 14, the end of verse 14, it says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And he's proved that, hasn't he? Throughout the prophets, he says, I'm in control of all the nations. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. They're going to haul you away. Guess what? The Babylonians came and they hauled them away. I'm going to set you free with the Persians and they're going to come. You're going to come back to your home. Guess what? He set them free with the Persians and they came back home. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Brothers and sisters, that's who we worship here this morning is the great king, the one who created the universe. Remember who you worship and then give him your first and your best. Now, I'm not talking about your livestock. Uh, not all of you have livestock. I have livestock, but I don't think that's my first or my best. We're talking about the first and the best of whatever it is that you have. And I think one of our, I think we would all agree, uh, one of our most valuable commodities is our time. Right, And so I think this is one area where God's people today can fall into this trap. And that would be in that I'm going to give God just the leftovers of my time. If I feel like it, I'll go and worship. Or if I feel like it, I'll do something to invest in my walk with him. Uh, or if I'm 
if I have a profitable year, then maybe then I'll give my gifts. And we're, there's actually another part of Malachi that deals with that. But giving God our leftovers. Malachi says, remember who you worship. The God who created you. The God who sent his son to become a human to pay for your sins. Bring him your first and bring him your best. The best of what you have. Your resources and your time. You know, I find it interesting on this theme, on this half-hearted worship. Jesus came 400 years later. And actually only about seven chapters after this in our Bible, the way it's laid out. So you go through the end of Malachi and then you go Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, chapter 5. You hit the Sermon on the Mount, which is this king who came and he expresses God's heart to us. Guess what he spends a lot of his time on in the Sermon on the Mount? Half-hearted worship. In fact, again, and go read through the Sermon on the Mount. I believe you could say Jesus is saying loud and clear, hey, take off your mask, people. I see what you're doing. You're saying this, but guess what? God wants your heart. And he goes through all these things, through prayer, through giving, through your relationships, uh, through, through uh, fasting. All these things Jesus lists off, and he says, you're just going through the motions. I want your heart. I want wholehearted worship. Remember who it is that you're worshiping. Give me your best. Jesus the King drives that same point home just a few chapters later in Scripture. So those are the first two heart conditions. Number two is the one that we spend the most time on. But the third one I want to mention is unfaithfulness. And what are we talking about here? Well, here's what they were doing. I want to read these verses from chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. What? Let me summarize before I read this. Basically, these folks are... Um, uh, they've come back into the land and we actually see Nehemiah describe the same thing. They've come back into the land. They've brought their families and their wives from Persia or wherever they were. And now when they're back home, guess what? Foreigners have kind of settled in the land. And so some of these folks are taking wives from those foreigners. And you might say, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, first of all, God tells them they're not supposed to do that. But why does God tell them that? Well, it's because those foreigners worship other gods, worship idols. And so this is automatically going to lead his people astray all over again after just what they went through. So listen to these verses from chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Verse 11, Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in all Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. In other words, it's not saying they're actually worshiping idols yet, but they're on the road to worshiping idols again. Because they've married these people who worship idols. What else does it say? Skip down to verses 13 and 14. It says, In this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, these people were leaving behind their wives, divorcing them. In fact, a little bit later here, it says God hates divorce. They're being unfaithful to the promises they've made to God and to to their spouse. And so what is it, you know, that why is this such a big deal? 
God says, when you come to my offering, after you've been doing these kind of things at home, being unfaithful to your spouse, and you think I'm just going to accept your worship, you're wrong. Because I don't just see you when you walk through the door on Sunday morning or on Saturdays when they, when they worshiped on the Sabbath in those days. I don't just see you on that day during this hour. I see all of what's going on. You might be putting a front up and a mask up and acting like it's all fine, but I see what's going on in your relationships and especially in your families. And it's interesting when we get to this point in the book of Malachi, you begin to realize that those who find it or those who do not love Yahweh, those who do not love the Lord, find it impossible to appropriate love the people around them, to love the the people around them. Uh, If they're not faithful to God, they can't be faithful to the people in their lives. And so it all begins with that relationship with God, but it transfers over into your relationships with people. And so what's the solution here? If you find yourself tempted to any form of unfaithfulness in your families, in your friendships, your business dealings, if you're tempted to go down that route of being unfaithful to people, what's the solution? I think it's to realize again that God calls us to model his faithfulness. Again, think about all the examples of God's faithfulness to his people through the minor prophets. Think about all the examples of God's faithfulness to you in your life and in your lifetime. God says, as I've been faithful to you, I want you to be faithful to the people around you. I've given you a new heart through Jesus Christ, if you know him. And it's a heart of faithfulness. And we see that in homes and in in family relationships especially. The home is a laboratory for discipleship. And you might be saying here, well, okay, wait, you know, maybe I'm married to someone who doesn't believe. Or maybe I'm even divorced. Um. God still loves you. And God says, I want you to walk with me and come to me. And regardless of what history you have, God can help you move forward. That's the message of the minor prophets. No matter how messed up your history might be or how messed up your current situation is, God says, I will be with you as you go forward. Just trust me and depend on me. So unfaithfulness is another heart condition. The the fourth one is doubting God's justice. We've seen this throughout the minor prophets. Just briefly, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, it says, You have wearied the Lord with words, but you say, How have we wearied him? Malachi says, By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? In other words, they're still seeing injustice in their land, even after they've returned. And, you know, that's the same of the other prophets. If you look at chapter 3, well, God says, well, my solution is I'm going to send my messenger. I'm going to send my king who will bring justice. And, you know, we like to latch onto those verses. Um, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the message of the covenant in whom you delight declares the Lord of hosts. He is coming. Verse 2, this one's not as comfortable. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? That's a question that the prophets have asked over and over again. When God comes in judgment, who can stand? The answer is no one, unless they've been forgiven by Christ. Uh, Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so these people were doubting God's justice because they're saying all these bad things are happening. God's not judging them. And what's God's answer? He says, trust my timing. Trust my timing. One day the righteous judge will come. They were looking forward to the coming of Christ. We know that the first coming of Christ did not bring full justice to everything. It makes justice possible. But we await the second coming of Christ, 
where all things will be restored for all time. Look at the book of Revelation. It describes that in detail. But as you look at these things, what causes you to doubt God's justice? When you look around and you see situations, things like uh, innocent people being killed or innocent people's property being destroyed. You know, there's a lot of examples of injustice right now uh, in the news, racial injustice, social injustice, however you want to describe it. It's all injustice. Unjust things are happening. And I would encourage you, don't doubt God's ability to provide ultimate justice. Don't doubt his ability to provide justice in the future and even now through his people. Embrace the coming king. That's what God tells his people. The king is coming. He's going to set things right. And then also trust God's timing. We see that in the book of Daniel. Um, the book of Daniel. Moving ahead to the next thing. The next heart condition is grudging worship. And the same thing kind of is going on here that was going on in chapter 2. I'm going to read chapter 3 verses 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What a beautiful promise. But you say, how shall we return? Now God gives them the answer. Here's what you're doing. Verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. And he goes on in the next couple of verses to describe how they're not bringing in their offerings like he asked them to do. And so this is one of those uh, texts that talks about giving to God what he's asked you to give. In the Old Testament, tithe uh, typically begins by meaning like a tenth. They were required to bring a tenth of what they had in the Old Testament. But one of my seminary professors actually pointed out that was just kind of one component. That was a good starting point in the Old Testament. They also had to bring, if they ever messed up, they had to bring a sin offering, a guilt offering. Uh, they had to bring a grain offering, all these different things they had to bring. And he said, depending on how sinful a person was, they might have ended up giving more like 30 or 40 percent. And so you say, well, thank goodness we're not in the Old Testament anymore, right? Where God says you have to kind of make payment and, and do restitution type things like that uh, in worship. Yet we are living under the grace of Christ. And he repeats these same things that we are called to give cheerfully and willingly, not grudgingly like these people were uh, here in Malachi. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it talks about how God loves a cheerful giver. And I would just say to you this, you hear a preacher talk about giving cheerfully, and you might say, oh, sure. Here we go again, Marcus. You're going to ask me for your money. Put your hand out. You want my money. And I'll tell you this, if, if you doubt my motives in this, give your money to somebody else, okay? Uh, there's plenty of great organizations that need your money. But I would say this, God wants you to invest your money in his kingdom. Hands down, that's the message of scripture. Use what he's given you. And, and I think one of the things you see from this principle is God says all of your resources belong to me. All of them belong to me. Now invest them in things that will further my kingdom. Like your church, like ministries, like missionaries you know. God says don't do this grudgingly. Do it willingly. And all of us have probably given and we felt grudging about it from time to time. So what's the solution if you're tempted to feel, feel that way? I heard a speaker one time who said, well, your solution is write a big check. <laughs> I said, what in the world is he talking about? And I think he basically said the solution, if you don't feel generous, is to give and God will make you generous. Uh, 
And, and Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 21. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. He says, put your treasure there, and guess what? Your heart is going to follow. It's the way God designed it. So all of your treasure belongs to God. I would just encourage you, use it in the interests of his kingdom. Use it in the interests of his kingdom. Then the last thing that sums all these up in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, uh, is this idea of arrogance. I'm going to read these verses. It says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of us keeping his charge or walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This echoes Psalm 73, basically the idea of how, is this even real? All this stuff we're trying to do to worship God, we're trying to follow him, do things the right way, be kind to people, love him and love others. And it seems like the people who don't do that might even be doing better than me. Is this even real? I doubt that any of these people in Malachi were saying this stuff out loud. But again, God says, I'm looking at your heart and you're doubting, you're disbelieving And you're saying that this may not even be real. It's really no different than what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they said, we know better than what God tells us. It's what the people did at the Tower of Babel in Genesis and said, we can make ourselves great. Our way is better than God's way. It's what the people in Psalm 14 said. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Arrogantly denying that this really makes sense. God says, I see straight through that mask. And I want your heart to know that following me is the one thing that's important for all eternity. Knowing me through my son, Jesus Christ, is the one thing that can set you free and make your worship worthwhile. So we asked this question this morning, what's behind the mask? And I think the resounding message from Malachi is, take off this mask. Take off this mask of... Uh, pretending like you're worshiping God if you're really not. And so you might have heard all those heart conditions. You might have said, yeah, I struggle a little with that, and I struggle a lot with that one. And my worship, I know I'm not giving God my best. So what do you do if you find yourself in that place? First of all, I would invite you, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you don't worship him as your king, do that today. But the second thing I would say is this is the process that the Holy Spirit completes little by little, day by day, one day at a time, one choice at a time. God says, I am repairing your heart. And one day when you reach heaven, it will be completely repaired, completely restored. And we see that picture of restoration throughout the minor prophets. God says, I call you to obedience, but I'm not just going to ask you to obey blindly. I'm also going to give you a hope that one day you will be fully, fully restored Chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And skipping ahead, verse 2 of chapter 4, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. 
God promises that there will be a day of great rejoicing for those who follow him, for those who know him. And so I would just invite you, let's follow him with our whole hearts. You know, I've showed you this uh, image a couple times over the last few weeks. As we look at the book of Malachi, where does the Old Testament end? It's pointing to that true north, your relationship with the God who loves you. God says, I want you to worship me with your whole heart. And then all the other things you're trying to do as my followers will fall into place. Your discipleship, your personal growth, your relationships with others through community, the mission of going out to reach others. Stay focused on true north, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, as these people in the Old Testament awaited the coming, awaited the arrival of the king, God says, I want you to love me and love others in wholehearted worship. And guess what? He says the exact same thing to us today. As we await the second coming of Christ, God says, I want you to love me. I want you to love others in wholehearted worship as you seek me with all your heart. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to look at your word from Malachi. And God, I thank you for the challenge we receive. Lord, I pray that uh, any who struggle with these heart conditions, myself included, Lord, would depend on you as we do battle against them. And Lord, as we take off our mask and are completely open with you and open with one another, God, I pray that you would draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you will, please stand. I'm going to read a benediction from Psalm chapter 67 as we go out from here. Psalm 67 says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Amen. You are dismissed.